0: Welcome to this uh, event organized by the CAT Center for Mexican Studies. Uh, I'm Emilio Curri, director of the center. um, And uh, I'd like to briefly introduce our guest. uh, Remember that after his remarks, we will have plenty of time, I hope, for for questions. And uh, and then uh, we hope you'll stay for a little reception we have prepared afterwards. Oil has been at the center of Mexico's economic and political history since the beginning of the 20th century. Prior to 1920, Mexico was one of the world's largest producers, doubling its output during the years of the Revolution. The Constitution of 1917 declared all subsoil resources to be the property of the nation. And the ensuing conflicts between the Mexican government and US and British companies that developed and controlled that business loom large in Mexico's foreign relations throughout the 1920s and 1930s, culminating with Lázaro Cárdenas' expropriation of oil in March of 1938. Since then, foreign participation in the oil business has been largely forbidden, and the state oil company, Pemex, has managed all aspects of oil and gas exploration, extraction, processing, and distribution in Mexican territory. Oil revenues became a primary source of Mexico's government budget, and for a time, provided the lion's share of it. More broadly, Mexico's economic and social development has long been tied to the management of its oil resources. In the last decade, Mexico's production has declined steadily, and the search for solutions has raised again questions about the relationship between the state, Pemex, and private capital. Last year, after a long, and public debate, the Congress passed a series of reforms. Few people in Mexico, or I think anywhere else, are as knowledgeable about these issues as our speaker tonight, Adrián Lajú. Mr. Lajoux uh, was educated at the National University of Mexico and at Cambridge University. Between 1994 and 1999, he was Director General or CEO and Chairman of the board of the Pemex Group of operating companies, uh, and before that, he spent uh, uh, more than uh, almost two decades, I think, in, uh, first in the Energy uh, Ministry of Energy in Mexico, and then in various executive positions um, in Pemex itself, culminating, as I said, uh, with becoming its CEO between 1994 and 1999. Uh, today, Mr. Lajou is chairman of the Oxford Institute for Energy Studies, and president of Petrometrica, and non-executive director of Schlumberger, Ternium, Trinity Industries, and Grupo Petroquimico Beta. He's also a senior energy advisor to McKinsey and Company. He's uh, in the past held visiting fellowships at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government, and also at uh, the Kellogg Institute at Notre Dame. Uh, It is really uh, a pleasure and an honor to welcome him here today uh, to the University of Chicago where he will speak to us about Mexican oil and gas policies. Welcome. Thank you.
1: I I would like to thank Emilio Curi uh, for his kind invitation to to come to Chicago and speak here today uh, in this room. It is a real pleasure uh, and I've always been uh, a bit intrigued by the strong nostalgia that many Mexican friends uh, who have studied at this university, many of them with uh, Friedrich Katz, uh, the type of nostalgia that they have for Hyde Park. Uh, It is quite unique, I know of nothing similar, and I only wish that I had a bit more time uh, here in Chicago to try to understand a bit better this enormous nostalgia eh, among all friends in Mexico. I will structure my presentation on the Mexican oil industry around four basic eh, topics. A big nasty fact, a puzzle of denial, a strategic paradox, and a reform failure. The big nasty fact is the decline in production in the Cantarell field offshore in the Bay of Campeche, and the recent behavior of its uh, main reservoirs. For a long time, Mexico, uh, Mexican oil production has been dominated by one single supergiant field. Cantarell was discovered in the second half of the 1970s. Production had ramped up uh, to one million barrels a day Uh, by 1983, uh, at the level that was sustained until the mid-1990s. In 1996, I asked the government uh, of Mexico for authorization to structure a large-scale project that included infield drilling, additional infrastructure, and a pressure maintenance program that would inject nitrogen to these reservoirs. The project was extraordinarily successful, probably too successful. Production increased to 2.2 million barrels a day by the end of the year 2003. However, when dealing with finite resources, good things eventually come to an end. The very nasty fact is that Cantarell's production has declined from a peak Uh, that I mentioned before, 2.2 million barrels a day, to only 817,000 barrels a day last January. A 63% decrease in five years. Unfortunately, when a supergiant field uh, uh, contracts, the absolute reduction is also supergiant and almost impossible to compensate. Uh, When Cantarell began to decline, this field was contributing about 62% of total Mexican crude oil production. So you can imagine the impact of this uh, supergiant field. And it's, it's the largest, it was the largest field, offshore field in the world and probably the third largest field uh, uh, overall worldwide. Thus, once this happened, once Cantarell began to decline, total Mexican production dropped from a peak of about three and a half million barrels a day to 2.7 million barrels a day, a loss of almost one fourth of the total. Up to 2005, Pemex was able to forecast production in Cantarell accurately with the help of sophisticated simulation models. The behavior of its reservoirs was a textbook case, a real textbook case. However, in 2007, the first signs of a misbehavior appeared and became fully evident by the fourth quarter of that year. The climb rates de- accelerated and more than doubled in 2008, when they averaged an appalling 30% per year. At least four questions, to my mind, arise with this uh, performance. First, did Pemex underinvest in Cantarell as it neared its peak in preparation for the decline phase? Why was Pemex unable to foresee the dramatic change in the performance of Cantarell? Why did it react so slowly to the fundamental change of circumstances? And does it have a fully developed plan of intervention in this field uh, that will moderate decline rates and increase ultimate recovery uh, of oil from this field? I have been probing these questions for some time now, but I am afraid to say that I have not found yet adequate answers uh, to them. What is clear to me is that the Mexican oil industry faces a critical juncture. The expansion that began in 1996 is now clearly over. In the last 25 years, Uh, There have been few significant discoveries and none of them in the giant class. Proved hydrocarbon reserves have fallen rapidly in recent years and reserve replacement uh, rates are dangerously low. The average lifespan of proven reserves stands below 10 uh, year, the 10 year threshold. In fact, uh, today it is certainly below nine years. Concern, and this is something that might not be too great a concern to me at my age, but it certainly is uh, at the age of many of the Mexicans that I see in this room. Now, concern over the maturity of the proved reserve endowment of Mexico grows as probable reserves are concentrated in regions that will not be easily developed. The geology uh, of current and likely prospects differs uh, dramatically from that of existing producing assets. Average finding and development costs are higher than those reported by major oil companies. Lifting and production costs have substantially increased, you know, starting from a relatively, in fact, a very low level. Upstream capital intensity has been rising Expanding the exploration frontier to high-risk, high-cost, deep water structures requires substantial financial and technical resources, and it will take a number of years to fully appraise their potential. Additional capital and operational expenditures will have to be allocated to exploration and production itself, Pemex needs to replace reserves and moderate production decline rates simultaneously. It must do this at a time when it is obligated to invest significant sums in refining and infrastructure maintenance and expansion. Mexico has become a, net, a substantial net importer of oil products and natural gas, which is quite paradoxical. This is the result of chronic underinvestment in the refining system and the maturity of the proved natural gas reserve base. Last year, the country imported 42%, 42, of the gasoline that is sold domestically in Mexico, as well as a fourth of the uh, 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 liquefied, natu- uh, liquefied uh, petroleum gas, LPG, uh, it was also In 2007, natural gas imports accounted for a fourth of domestic sales. More important, the value of gasoline imports is now uh, approximately 30% of total crude oil exports. Paradoxically, although this country is a major crude oil exporter, security of supply concerns have now entered public policy debates. Short-term attention focuses on import dependence and relates both to supply reliability and price volatility. Long-term security, and I'm, in spite of my age, I'm more and more um, concerned about that. Long-term security of supply has come to the forefront as reserves to production ratios have dropped below the 10-year threshold. The adequacy of proven reserves to sustain current production levels, uh, and more importantly, to guarantee expected future domestic requirements is an issue that has arisen with crude oil exports accounting for more than half of total production. So the implication of this is that Mexico might be well advised to reduce the level of its current exports in order to have additional resources for future Mexican uh, generations. Now let me go to this uh, sort of denial puzzle puzzle that we're facing. Government authorities and PEMEX executives appear to be in a denial mode regarding future production. They are not willing to accept that the main upstream task is to manage the climb. They uh, still believe that they will be able to maintain current production levels up to 2012 and and probably increase later in the decade. That is their uh, current view. At the end of April of last year, a couple of weeks after the government had published its diagnosis of Pemex, an official diagnosis of of the Pemex uh, overall situation, top management confirmed that mid-term strategic objective of maintaining crude oil production above 3.1 million barrels a day. This was surprising given that production averaged 2.8 million barrels in that same month. Volume in 2008 was also 2.8 million barrels a day, and in 2009, the operating program foresees a level of 2,750,000 barrels a day. Exactly a week ago, the Pemex CEO reaffirmed midterm targets, that is, targets to the end of this administration. Production, he said, will remain between 2.7 and 2.8 million barrels a day. Reserve uh, replacement ratios will increase at least uh, to 100%, and the reserve to production ratio of 10 years will be reestablished. My own assessment, with limited resources, but my own assessment is that the probability of meeting any of these three targets by 2010 is very close to zero. Uh, production was less than 2.7 million barrels in the first two months already of the year 2009. Longer term, Pemex continues to believe and to bet on making significant discoveries that will allow it to increase crude oil production beyond the three million barrel a day threshold. Now, decline happens in the best of families. Oil provinces that were developed in the 1970s, like Alaska, the North Sea, and West Siberia, have been in decline for some time now. And given the, the state of knowledge, the current state of knowledge, there is no reason for me to believe that Mexico will be the exception, the exception to the North Sea, to West Siberia, and to Alaska, to give you some examples. Now, let me pass on to the strategic paradox. And here, it is a strategic, it's a basic paradox of strategy that has been designed to cope with decline. The, the government and Pemex aspire to increase production on the basis of a wave of substantial discoveries to be made offshore in the Gulf of Mexico mostly in high-cost, high-risk, ultra-deep water structures. It is a really big bet. However, there are ample exploration opportunities in shallow waters close to existing fields and infrastructure. From a development perspective, the highest priorities must be given to Carantarel itself and to the nearby Kumalob Saab field to brownfield projects in the southeast, both onshore and offshore, and to the Chicontepec Basin in central Veracruz, a region close to Emilio Oscuri's Divided Pueblo. However, Pemex and the Ministry of Energy believe that they can pursue all of these objectives simultaneously, and have given deep water exploration the highest public exposure. My concern is that the opportunity cost of ultra-deep water projects will be the insufficient attention uh, that other less complex exploration and development uh, priorities will receive. The public commitment by Pemex to ultra-deep water projects has, I think, mistakenly defined priorities and poses significant risks to its short and midterm production and reserve replacement objectives. Now, why has PEMEX launched the deep and ultra deep water exploration strategy for which it is particularly ill-equipped? I have three non-exclusive uh, explanations. The first is is simple, straightforward ignorance. (laughs) During the first two months of the new administration, government officials and a new and inexperienced top management in Pemex ratified decisions made by the Fox government that are today very difficult to revert. The second is uh, naivete. The authorities thought that they could Tap substantial external financial, technical, and managerial resources from the international oil industry without fundamental legal and regulatory change in Mexico. The third was the perception that the opening to private investment in deep waters would be politically easier to achieve, particularly if trans-border fields were discovered along the Perdido uh, Fold Belt, which is right in the border offshore between the Mexican sector and the U.S. sector uh, of the Gulf of Mexico. A further opening of the Mexican upstream could then be leveraged on these projects. Lack of experience in large and complex ultra deep water projects, barriers to accessing the required technology, managerial restrictions, access to financial resources and risk management were arguments used by the government to position its reform proposals. However, all of these factors are also good reasons for deferring these projects and preparing more fully for them given the political restriction on constitutional amendments in the oil sector. Meanwhile, more focused attention should be given to moderating the decline rate and increasing recovery uh, uh, factors in existing producing fields. Now, before analyzing recent uh, reforms and or, if you want, the lack of them, uh, let me share with you the perspective from which I approach them so that you will fully understand my own prejudices. Over the years, five basic assumptions guided my own work in the Mexican oil industry. Please allow me to restate them. First, I am convinced that Mexico must maintain a large scale, integrated, commercially driven, dominant oil firm with an unequivocal national identity. It should be part of a core of Mexican firms that are or can be internationally competitive. Under current uh, uh, domestic conditions, this can only be guaranteed by the state itself. Two, the privatization of Pemex is not a central issue of Mexican energy policy. It is the gradual introduction of competition, first in the markets for gas and oil products, in final markets, eventually in the down and midstream of the industry, and finally in the upstream. This is the natural sequence that allows price signals to move through the value chain from the market to the core of the upstream. Three, the key prerequisite for the development of competition in Mexico's oil gas markets is the design and adoption of a modern regulatory framework and the establishment of strong, independent regulatory institutions. The enforcement of new rules of the game would eliminate the direct administrative and political intervention by the government that constrains managerial decision-making in Pemex. Four, the transformation of Pemex is not possible without fundamental change in the industrial governance of the oil and gas sector. This poses a wider set of issues than the limited discussion of corporate governance. Five, given the magnitude of the economic rent generated by Pemex, Change will have to be gradual so that, uh, so as not to destroy value. It is a very, uh, you know, the magnitude of rent is, is quite enormous. Now, let me add a sixth assumption. I have, I have come to accept it after a long and, and very painful journey. Today, I do not see any alternative to the opening of the Mexican oil industry to private investment, both national and international. However, I am also deeply convinced that entry must be gradual and it must be well-regulated. Recently, I I gave a, a talk at Harvard with the title, Mexican oil reform, without a dancing partner, one small step to the right and two steps backward. <laughs> it sounds a bit better uh, in Spanish. La reforma petrolera mexicana, sin pareja, un pasito a la derecha y dos pasos para atrás. I still think that this is a good descrip- description of what actually happened over uh, the last year. As you might be aware, there, are, there were three different oil reforms proposals before Congress made by the three major political parties. What appears to be in term, what appeared at the time to be interminable uh, negotiations, in fact, we were all sort of, uh, 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 there was sort of uh, oil reform fatigue because of the lengthy process that it, uh, we, it was subjected to. Uh, All of this took place in the Senate, mainly in the Senate, but also in many dark lit rooms uh, uh, in various places uh, around Mexico City. Some were hopeful that the uh, compromise of sorts would be reached. Others like me believed that an agreement was not feasible, a real agreement was not feasible, nor probably desirable in terms of what was really possible. My initial view was that the watered-down version of the watered-down presidential bill would pass in such a way that everybody could declare victory. The PAN would have achieved a much-awaited energy reform. The PRI would claim that it had precluded constitutional amendments and stopped privatization. And the PRD could say that their opposition a, the parliamentary and extra parliamentary opposition to the reform bill and their extra parliamentary actions forced an open discussion of the issues and eliminated the most objectionable aspects of the initiatives. This is what, in fact, happened. The triumphant tone of all the three parties went far beyond my own expectations. It was a real exercise in political cynicism. However, I am convinced that the legal, regulatory, eh, eh, organizational, and governance structures that were approved are inferior to the status quo ex ante. I say this with deep regret, as the status, status quo is not sustainable, and it is leading us to what might be a major disaster. I found the presidential initiative lacking. It limited itself to oil and was not placed in a wider and longer term energy context. The central objective was to give Pemex greater flexibility and freedom in contracting services with international oil companies. It is a very modest proposal that will not I believe elicit much of a response by these companies. It will be of little help in supporting an ultra deep water effort. It might be useful in contracting services with service companies in low risk environments like Chicontepec, and in brownfield developments as is in fact already happening. The constitution expressly forbids any form of concession or production sharing agreement. Currently only pure service contracts are permitted. The new uh, uh, law opened the possibility of what are called risk service contracts, but essentially they are a form of service contracts, not of risk uh, in a pure sense. While the initiative modestly opened the sector to private investment, it did not propose to liberalize the oil product and natural gas markets. The introduction to competition in these final product markets was never discussed. Existing downstream regulation was negatively affected and the proposed upstream regulator is a weak advisory board reporting to the Secretary of Energy. The roles of the regulator and of the executive are ill-defined. The changes in corporate governance are unimaginative and are inadequately framed in terms of the overall industrial governance of this sector. Much of the greater operating, budgetary, and regulatory autonomy given to Pemex was granted in exchange for internalizing controls that will increase the size of the Pemex bureaucracy. Budgetary autonomy moved in the right direction, but is offered in a time frame that is too long. The form given to the opening of the refining industry to the private sector was eventually ab- abandoned as it was probably inconsistent with existing the existing constitutional framework and is an economically inferior solution uh, difficult to optimize and conceptually and contractually very complex. Flexibilizing uh, upstream contracts by permitting risk service contracts is a positive but insufficient move in terms of the government's oil strategy objectives. However, the most fundamental criticism that can be made to the initiative is that it does not give a clear sense of direction. Having reached an understanding with the PRI that the constitutional framework would be maintained intact, they sacrificed what was needed to what at the time they thought was a feasible uh, reform. The president's uh, initiative also suffered from uh, internal tensions within the government, conflicts on many issues between the ministries of energy, of finance and with PEMEX are clearly reflected in the final draft presented to Congress. It is evident that many hands were uh, uh, involved. Now, the single most important uh, backward step proposed by, and this was proposed by pre-legislators, was the protection and formal strengthening of the Pemex commercial monopoly. It reflects a deep mistrust for markets and for market solutions. It argues that Pemex should not give up a market, nobody's suggesting that, I would say probably a supply system, not a market, that it has developed over the years. It does not recognize that this market monopoly is the result of public policy and not of any specific effort by Pemex. In any case, it is difficult to construe it is a Pemex asset. Responsibility for oil product formation was not given to the Comisión Reguladora de Energía, as is is currently the case in natural gas, but to to the Pemex board and in the last instance to the Ministry of Finance. Given the high and growing level of imports of gasoline and LPG and the projected diesel deficit For Pemex, the introduction of competition in the domestic market would have been relatively harmless. It would have ample time to prepare itself for effective competition, given the locational advantages of its own production. The real underlying problem is the prevalence of high subsidies granted to these projects. These are not, how would I put it, there's there's no understanding uh, and certainly no sympathy in the PRI or in the PRD for the potential benefits of competition to consumer. But more surprising, it is also the case of the PAN. This deeply embedded ideology does not permit any of these parties to even think of the institutional requirements and safeguards that are needed in the introduction Through the introduction of regulation, of modern regulation. To sum up, the one small step to the right was the adoption of risk service contracts. The two steps back were the strengthening of the Pemex commercial monopoly and the internalization of government controls, of these enormous government controls. They were internalized in Pemex, and at the same time, the way that this was handled was that the new law empowers greatly a very dysfunctional Pemex board of directors. Unfortunately, there's nothing more reactionary than failed reform. It makes future reform even more difficult. This was President Calderon one and only opportunity. Reform, I am afraid, uh, will have to wait until the next administration. Now, let me end my remarks with a rather sour note. Going beyond the current policy debate, and also looking back, I asked myself what oil has done for Mexico over the last 30 years. Oil played a very different role in the 1920s, uh, later on after nationalization, uh, and certainly after the large discoveries in southeastern Mexico in the 1970s. So my question is what has oil done for us in these last 30 years? All I can say is that we have misused oil revenues and mismanaged the oil industry. We have not transformed non-renewable assets into reproducible wealth. We have not effectively used the oil industry to leverage the economic development of the country. Some say that the only worse thing than having oil is not having it, I sometimes wonder. Oil revenues bailed us out of some of the recurrent financial and economic crises since 1981. They also magnified the macroeconomic adjustments that were required because they allowed us to delay what should have been more timely policy measures. Price shocks, from the 1981 price inflection to the 1986, 1998, and 2008 price collapses were not easily managed given other structural imbalances in Mexico. The recent high price shock was also mismanaged. In 2008, product price subsidies were more than $30 billion for that year we face significant episodes of what is called Dutch disease that help explain deindustrialization in the 1980s and 1990s. The capital intensive enclave patterns of offshore, of the offshore oil industry uh, and its expenditures had limited multiplier effects and lacked the dynamism and the strength it lacked the dynamism that was required and did not further the density of inter-industry links in, within Mexico. Maybe our expectations in the, light, in the late 70s were totally unjustified. In a deep sense, of the oil rich areas of the world, only the US, Canada, Norway, and I understand that Australia, have not suffered from the resource curse. The explanation seems to be in the nature and quality of institutions. This is precisely where I think Mexico failed. Oil allowed it to defer much needed reforms that were critical to modernization. Let me give you one very relevant example, and very much linked to the oil industry. (coughs) Tax reform. If you eliminate oil tax revenues, Mexico has the lowest tax burden in Latin America, an area that we all know is uh, not famous for collecting taxes. The Mexican tax burden is 11% of GDP, a ratio only equal to Haiti, a failed state. But there are many other reform failures associated to this fundamental fiscal restriction on Mexican development. But I am sorry to finish with this very sour, pessimistic appraisal, especially after having spent all of my professional career in the oil industry. Thank you very much. Changes, yeah.
0: So well, the floor is open for questions?
1: Yes, I'm open for all questions. I mean, I, I hope we have uh, a, 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 some time uh, left uh, because it's difficult for me to to see what might be your own interest regarding the Mexican oil industry. So please uh, feel free to go in any direction you might want. I, uh, I asked whether... Uh, the- are you hearing it? I asked whether uh, the remarks you gave us and, and the, uh, the um, information you gave us and the, the, uh, uh, the judgment, the, the, the judgments that you made, whether you have made them public in a way that they could be part of the national debate in Mexico. Well, as I, as I mentioned, I've, I've written this very long paper, too long probably, uh, that will be published shortly. Uh, I've also published some of these things or some of these opinions in, in the Mexican press, and uh, and I also uh, gave uh, a, how do you call it a testimony in the Senate. Uh, I was invited, in fact, twice to go. I normally you're only given one chance, so I was given two chances to speak my mind. So yes, I think this is part. Some of these issues are part of the discussion, uh, but clearly it's very difficult going when you have the three main political parties simply saying that everything couldn't be better in terms of what they have done recently uh, with respect to reform. Who were the key advisors to Calderón in building the reform? Who were they, who did he approach? I don't really know. Uh, I mean, what, what is important more than, I, I, I don't know who, they, who helped them out. Uh, what is important, I think, is uh, the weakness of the energy ministry. Uh, uh, you know, that's where the expertise should have resided in developing uh, these proposals. And it's a very weak ministry, one of the weakest. I worked there many years ago and I've had to deal with it, I had to deal with it for many years. And the problem there is, uh, maybe that's the reflection of, of its uh, lack of strength, but you know, the instability of that ministry is extraordinary. I've done, a, a, I did a, some numbers, and it came out that starting in 1982 to until last year, uh, the average uh, life of an energy minister uh, in office, course was 2.2 years yeah. it, so you have this constant rotation and then on top of that that's at the top but it same happens further down there's no real strong civil service as you might have in other ministries like the ministry of finance where you know there's a strong civil service in a sense so i think that's the real problem and then on the other hand in pemex you you have also had I, what I believe is too rapid rotation of CEOs and of managerial teams in in, in Pemex. Uh, there's uh, after I left, there's already been four CEOs, uh, which is you know a big number of them. And I believe also that in terms of Pemex, uh, you have on the one hand the sort of technical expertise, but you don't have the type of of expertise that you require in policy development. So I think that for these reasons, and other and conflicts inside of the government, it was very difficult for the government to come out with something that was reasonable. Now, that's no excuse.
0: Thank you for your very uh, interesting remarks. I have a question. Uh, either way you look at it, uh, if it's in private hands or public hands, it appears to me from the data that you quote that the level of investment to replace reserves and to bring uh, either new fields or recover these fields is substantial. What price level uh, in the international market of oil do you think will be necessary to support the types of investments that Mexico has to take to achieve the objectives that you have outlined? Mm.
1: Well, f- first of all, uh, let me say that you know there is obviously and, and there has been a, b- a very severe underinvestment in the oil industry. Uh, I mean, my most difficult task was always trying to get uh, more resources from the government that was taxing all of the Pemex revenues. Uh, But mind you, the budget this year is 19 billion, uh, the capital expenditure budget is 19 billion dollars. It's not a small number by any means. So, uh, the problem is that we have accumulated a lot of area, you know, a big, uh, we have underinvested for so long that we are today having to invest major sums simply not to uh, uh, fall uh, off on the cliff, on a cliff. So, uh, first of all, the Mexican government today is spending them quite a lot. Now, clearly, uh, if prices remain what they are today, not this year, not the year 2009, but after 2009, clearly the government will either have to make a further a, a tax reform in all in, so that it can liberate resources for Pemex, or Pemex will again suffer from the traditional underinvestment that it has suffered from so yes i think that especially uh, you know 2010 2011 uh, there is the need for much higher prices now what is the precise uh, price it's it's a complex exercise but uh, the point is yes we will need higher prices in order to be able to maintain a level of investment of the in the range of 20 billion dollars a year the the pemex management has called for an average over the next 5 years of 22 billion dollars. And you know, it's a big number for Mexico for any company and clearly it's a very big number for Mexico except for our government. Hmm? Well, I, kn- I know I know <laughs> what the the magnitudes are here today. I'm sorry. Yes, thank you very much uh, for your presentation. I have uh, two questions. Uh, number 1 when you speak of uh, uh, international investment. Are you uh, uh, favoring a, a particular types of uh, companies? Uh, some people were speaking of Brazilian companies uh, that have had technological know-how, and some other people of other companies. Uh, but since you have this experience, uh, you know what would you think? Another question is: uh, What are the risk high? Uh, the risk uh, service contracts. Uh, I'm not familiar with the term. Yeah, and the third question uh,
0: was uh, are, there, are there any numbers in terms of uh, proven reserves between the uh, shallow
1: waters and the deep waters? Well, thank you very much. Well, uh, you know, in terms of the companies, and at least uh, in, in, uh, in the media, uh, people recurrently uh, refer to. Uh, Petrobras and to to Statoil as possible partners of Pemex. I myself uh, find that the argument that is posed a difficult one. They say the reason why we would prefer to partner with these two companies is because they are state-owned companies. And yes, they are, uh, to a certain extent. Both have already significant chunks of private investment and in fact their performance is like any other private company especially when they work abroad so i would not look at at that feature of these companies but that you know their effective technological and managerial skills and the finance that they would provide in any venture that they had in mexico now the point i i wanted to make was that Yes, I I think that there's no alternative but to have private investment. But I would like to have, before that happens, a strong regulatory framework and a very strong regulatory institutions. I wouldn't want things to happen in the same way as what happened with the banks in Mexico. The problem of the banks in, in the 1990s was that they were privatized without the adequate regulatory framework and without adequate uh, institutions. And the end result of that process was that you not only privatized banks, but in fact, eventually, you denationalized banks. And Mexico today is the only country that is a member of the OECD uh, where none of the major banks, there's one small exception, are Mexican-based. So, you know, that's a a unique circumstance which I would not like repeated in the the energy sector. And that's why I would put as a prerequisite to any movement to a real opening up to private investment in Mexico, which I think is needed, I would put as a prerequisite effective regulation. And that takes time it's complex. You have to develop credibility. And as you know, others that have done this uh, have, have proved. Uh, so that's with respect to the oil companies. The other big decision that you have to make is what is the mix of, of oil companies and service companies. Uh, some of the service companies are working very actively and have been working actively in Mexico since nationalization but you know, services, service companies are different from the oil companies. They do not acquire equity where, you know, where they become involved. Now the, the difference, there's four basic contractual arrangements that you can have in the upstream, in very general terms. You have a, a concessions. You have what are called risk contracts, or production sharing uh, contracts and agreements. Uh, On the other end of the scale you have service contracts, pure service contracts, and then you have a variety of service contracts which are called risk service contracts in which the supplier assumes a certain amount of risk, but a risk that is very limited to the value of the services that they provide. And it is in this last uh, category that the law uh, uh, allows that now. That, the previous law, did not even allow for that sort of arrangement. Hmm. And and your last question, uh, the reserves, yes, you know, what what is, uh, there are no reserves in deep waters. Uh, There are potential resources, potential undiscovered resources. Now, the number for that is pretty large, but it's a potential, you know, it's, it's uh, something contingent. It's not a proven reserve like what you have in shallow waters or what you have onshore in Mexico. So it's difficult to compare the deep water potential to reserve numbers in, in other parts of, the, of Mexico. The risk is totally different. Uh, we, we have talked a little bit about what the regulatory framework has done for the potential of the oil industry in Mexico. I'm wondering what is happening within the company, and what are, what, are, what are some of the challenges that the company faces internally within its own organization as it tries to become more efficient, as it tries to make better decisions, and what, are, what may be some of the solutions that it might find today within the company under the current regulation? Well, uh, I think the, the, the great challenge for Pemex is, is a, a, a real basic change in the structure of governance of the company and of the processes of governance within the company. And the problem that I see is that the reform that took place does not really address this. The way that it was handled was that they are now appointing and putting on the Pemex board for what they call professional board members which means essentially that they're full time board members, which is, you know, unique in, in 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 the world of business. And what that actually is doing, and then you know, the law itself, and it's in the law, gives them very detailed set, you know, very detailed charters of what it is that they have to do in terms of committees, in terms of the board itself. My concern is that, you know, that is simply increasing the size and the complexity of the board, which is essentially a dysfunctional board. Because remember, right before the, the reform, half of the members of the board were ministers, half of the members of the board were uh, from the trade union, and I haven't talked at all about the trade union. And this meant, uh, and you know, I had to live with that board for many years, that it was basically a ritualistic process that you had to manage. There was no real substance in terms of decisions at the board level itself. I don't think that introducing four more members, which are civil servants, I mean, they are appointed full-time, they are government employees into those uh, board positions. And it simply creates, I believe, an even bigger bureaucracy within PEMEX and great potential for conflict among all of these uh, board members and the Pemex management. So what I see is increased potential for conflict between the management and the board members and between the board members and the uh, government itself because these new board members, uh, the only reason why they can be forced to leave is if they commit in moral acts, in the public uh, way, Uh, but nothing else. (laughs) Uh, So that means that they're there forever, for the time they've been appointed for. So I'm not happy at all with the solution. I think it was totally unimaginative. Uh, There were many alternatives in ways of restructuring the board. Now with respect to processes, the only thing that I've seen in the law are really very heavy bureaucratic processes that are put inside of PEMEX and, and, and specified by the law itself, which you know, makes it even more difficult. Yes? So uh, I have two questions. Uh, the first question is, uh, is a slumber technology helping uh, increase the production, the production of the current fields? And the second is, um, you mentioned uh, deep water is very risky. So focusing probably in shallow waters and in, uh, and, uh, and developing the current fields. So it's, uh, if uh, we concentrate in shallow waters, then do we actually need uh, international intervention or can PEMEX handle the shallow waters? Since, see, the technology would not be that. Uh, that see, strict. I think that uh, the real obstacle is not technology as such. Technology today is not only embedded in the oil companies, as it used to be in the past, but it is very much the realm of the service companies. So that means that you can go to a service company and buy the technology. Now, so to me the real restriction, the real problem faced by Pemex is not that it cannot acquire technology, is that it doesn't have the managerial capabilities to manage those very large-scale projects, very large-scale, very complex projects, uh, you know, these uh, uh, require sophisticated uh, uh, management uh, to make basic decisions. You know, in the field of exploration, you really face some of the toughest, most complex type of decisions because of the nature of the risk in which you are involved in. But even in development work. You, know, you have completion risks, you have uh, all sorts of risks that you have to, to, to face. So I would say that to me, technology is not in itself the main obstacle, it is the management, and particularly the intersection of you know, conventional managerial spheres, and the management of the technology. And the management, I wouldn't say of, even of the technology, of these very large scale, very complex uh, projects. Just remember, when you're drilling a well in the uh, uh, ultra deep water, each one of those wells you know, will cost you about $120 million. So every time that you hit that you know, it is a, wa- a, a dry well, it's a big event. And the, the probability that that happens is relatively high. So managing that risk is particularly, you know, a particularly sophisticated uh, activity. So I've w- argued a lot in Mexico. The problem is not technology, it's a managerial one. And that's the one we have to face. Now, people prefer to say that it's technology, because then it's like something outside of your own sphere. You know, it's something that foreigners have and you don't have. While it is much more difficult to recognize that these foreign companies do have a uh, managerial capabilities and you're not able to develop uh, managerial capabilities. To, to, it, this is like kind of uh, a add, adding uh, insult to injury, but you know. Uh, well, I, I just wanted to, I, I just wanted uh, to ask you about, you know, another level of complexity to the already incredibly complex issues you're you're, you're talking about, (laughs) which is the union. Hmm? The union. And all of the, well, there's a labor aspect to it, there's a political aspect to it, I mean, can can you talk a little bit about that? Well, let me first talk about the politics of it. Uh, The trade unions were a key uh, element in the Ancien Regime. You know, uh, when you when what was when voting was not relevant, for the reasons that we all know that it was not uh, a, a, you know the results were not respected in one way or another, what was important politically was the capacity of the government to mobilize uh, the population or part of the population. And the trade unions played a very important role in that because they were more discipline, they had the resources, and they were it's important instruments of political mobilization. Once the pre-regime uh, collapsed, I assumed that the strength and the role of the trade unions would also uh, lose out. And this hasn't happened. In fact, I would say, that today some of these major trade unions in Mexico, especially those that are linked to, to government activities or government-owned uh, uh, activities, are stronger than ever, be it the Sindicato de, 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 de la, de la Educacion, uh, be it the Pemex trade union. It's to me paradoxical that the most uh, generous treatment of the trade union that the trade union has ever received has been with PAN governments, not with the pre governments. The pre knew how to manage the, these unions. In fact, that's, it was in their DNA. Mm-hmm. While this is not the case with the PAN, so the PAN was afraid, thought that they needed them, were afraid of the instability that they might uh, produce, and their own lack of capability of, of managing and negotiating with the unions. So today, I think we are more a, the unions have strengthened their political power because of the weakness of the pre-government, of the pan-government. And it's paradoxical, you know, because of, of, its, of the history. Maybe this will change, I don't know, but it hasn't up till now, and you know. Uh, during the Fox government, the trade union, after having done pretty terrible things, was totally pardoned of any, uh, 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 any of its sins. So I think there's been a change in that respect. Now, on the labor front itself, the problem that Pemex is facing, and it includes not only people that uh, are trade union members, but, I'm, I'm sorry, the, the, pre, the PAN government has not only been generous in terms of money that it gives to the trade unions, but it has been very generous in terms of raising again the level of the people that have to be members of the trade union to work in Pemex. Uh, uh, during the uh, Salinas administration, that level was lowered after Laquina uh, was taken out, uh, was take, put in jail. And uh, after that, gradually, I mean, I started to receive those pressures, and they were very strong pressures, but they really became impossible to deal with, apparently, by the pan-governments uh, since the year 2000. So it's, it's not only generosity, it is actually giving them greater power at the uh, work center, you know, at the shop, Level. Uh, The other thing about the sort of labor situation more generally, not only unionized labor, is that Pemex right now is going through a very difficult uh, demographic uh, process. Because if you remember in the 1980s, we stopped recruiting, this happened to the oil industry worldwide, but in Mexico, it was even stronger. We, we stopped recruiting people in the 1980s uh, for a long period of time. Uh, the second thing is that it wasn't only that we stopped recruiting, also there was a, a, a process of negative selection of people coming into work to Pemex because of the political cycles also involved in the process. So that today you have a sort of big hole, a, a demographic hole in terms of people in their late 40s, you know, managers and and you know, technical people in their late 40s, uh, that you know, there's nobody. There's a big hole of people aged, let's say, between 35 and 45 <laughs> years of age, and that is going to create is already creating a serious problem for the company. Now that's not properly a trade union issue, but it is connected. And, uh, well, I won't say that. we have I think, for one
0: last question, and then we'll have a reception of the conversation First off, thank you for being here and, and giving us this um, interesting lecture. I just had a quick question. It's really general, but very interesting to me. If the reforms were failed reforms, then what was one? by them, in general. I mean, they say that, and I've read columns of opinions that say that what we won was overcoming the taboo of speaking about PEMICs as a real problem. Would you say that this is accurate? Or what, what, are, what did we win as a Mexican population of these reforms?
1: I suspect that the, the most important thing that we did win was that at least there was a, a very open discussion that, you know, 10 years ago, one would never have dreamt about. So, you know, I think that's no doubt an important step forward, and you know that's why I mentioned before. By uh, the time the reform was approved, we were all suffering from reform fatigue. It, it was months and months of public discussion in the Senate, in the media, uh, in academic, uh, in the academic world. I'm not saying anything about the quality of that discussion, but just the fact that that discussion was really totally open, uh, I think was an important event. Now, that is not enough, and clearly it was not enough in this case to really uh, allow us to reach intelligent decisions. But I think that precisely your point uh, was probably the most positive one in this process.
0: Yes, you can't say you didn't know. Uh, you can add energy to the list of Mexico's looming uh, crisis. Um, <laughs> I, I, uh, I think you all agree that this was a not only informative, but highly uh, provocative and uh, illuminating A presentation. So, uh, and as I said, we have a small reception outside where we can continue this conversation. But first, please join me in thanking Adrian Lajuz for a wonderful presentation. <laughs> Gracias. Gracias.